Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Our text this morning is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. Let's stand for the reading of this passage. I'm going to go back to the beginning of chapter 2 and read from there. So 2, 1 through 15. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Last Sunday I said this, uh, making the point that this passage, 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, applies to more than simply public worship. Okay, I said, stepping back for a moment, we see that our passage starts with a therefore in verse 8, which connects it to what precedes, and a likewise, verse 9, which connects it also to what precedes. The Apostle Paul's argument in the preceding verses is the reason for the commands that he is giving us now in this section. God taught us in those preceding verses that we are to pray for all men, right? We're, We're to pray. Pray for all men, for all who are in authority, so that we might live in a context, in a nation, in a culture where the Christian witness is still alive, right? Uh, Where we can live in uh, a context where the Christian witness thrives. Such is good. We want to live in an environment where the Christian witness thrives. Such is good because God desires all men to come to a knowledge of him, right? Right? 
God desires that. That's what the passage said. God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. To that end, Paul says there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul was appointed to preach that message to whom? To the whole world, right? To the Gentiles, he says. Out from the nation of the Jews like he was, out to the world, to the Gentiles. The context then is one not simply of private worship, but this, worldwide Christian witness. That is the context of this passage. Um, and that's important. That's important when we come to this text. He says, pray for all men that all men might come to a knowledge of God. And then he connects the commands of verse 8 through 15 to that command. Many people want to limit these verses to public, corporate, Lord's Day, Sunday morning worship only. Though the immediate context of the passage is the one that I just said, worldwide Christian witness. Um, This passage, what the Holy Spirit is teaching us, is... I mean, the context of which the Holy Spirit is, is teaching us is the witness of the Christian in the world not merely limited, but not excluded from the sanctuary, right? So it's the whole world. It's everywhere. It's every place. Okay, now why do people want to limit this passage to public worship? That's the question. Um, because to say things about manhood and womanhood that apply outside the church or the home, right, that apply outside the church or the home to society in general, right, is, is, is seen as absolutely crazy, is seen as actually sabotaging our Christian witness. If we, if we say there's something to masculinity and femininity that's good, and it applies to society in general beyond just Christian homes and Christian churches, then, you know, people get, Christians get really uncomfortable at that point. Um, It's one thing to say that women should submit to their husbands, right? That's the context of the home. We get that. We understand Ephesians 5. It's quite another thing to say that the submission of women extends beyond the home and the church. And we get really uncomfortable. To, for example, let's say this, the propriety or impropriety of having a woman as the president of the United States of America. Does this passage speak to that or does it not? Does God's calling man, calling male and female good apply there? Or should we only limit God saying that male and female is good to the home and to the church? but not to society. But looking ahead just for a second now to, to prove even more that the, the case that, that Paul is in the, the Holy Spirit. I'm not even going to say Paul here because this is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. This is God who wrote these words, okay? The Holy Spirit here is teaching us that this worldwide witness, this, this worldwide imprint... Um, 
is, is clear by where it goes to in the second part of the passage. I don't, I'm not, I don't intend to focus on that, but we'll see where it goes. Um, when Paul states that women should not teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, what is the ground of his argument? The basis of God's prohibition is grounded in two realities. The order of creation, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. The order of creation, the order of creation that happened prior to the fall, the order of creation that happened before everything went bad when Adam sinned. The order of creation, okay? Adam was created first, then Eve. And the other ground that the Holy Spirit gives for the the prohibition on women exercising authority over men is this, women... Woman's greater susceptibility to temptation. And now we're getting really uncomfortable. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Okay? The Holy Spirit goes to the first man and woman from whom descend every man and woman in the history of the world. If the Holy Spirit had gone back only to say, the time after the fall, like the temple order, right? He, if the Holy Spirit had just, here in this passage, had made his arguments and said, well, look at the temple. Only men ruled in the temple, and so we should only rule that way. But, but this is not the case. He goes back to creation, all the way to the start. And that is significant. Why is that significant? Because... This creation order is a creation ordinance just like marriage that has application not simply to the context of public worship, but to the very structural, foundational, operational reality of male and female everywhere. It's the way God made the world, not just the church, not just the home. The general principle of Scripture is this. Men are to lead and women are to show deference to men. Why? Because Adam was created first, not Eve. That order, that woman was created for man, not man for the woman. Woman was created for the man, not man for the woman. That's scripture. That's the Holy Spirit who says that in 1 Corinthians 11. That order was imprinted onto God's world. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 9, perhaps the most offensive verses to our modern sensibilities in all of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11, 7. Man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. And we're like, oh, man, that's, that's terrible. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, these are cataclysmic verses. The one that we're focused on in 1 Timothy, that in 1 Corinthians 11, will destroy any paradigm of sexuality that you've ever been taught by a dead, dying, God-hating society. And they hurt. They're like, 
I mean, how am I going to tell my wife this? I mean, how am I going to tell, how, how am I going to confess my sexuality now in my workplace? It's going to cost me my job. Now, yeah, again, those, those, when we're raised in a feminist morass, we find these teachings unreasonable, we find them offensive, and we've never been taught such teaching in the church because the church has simply compromised and cast a longing eye to the world. The feminism of the church has limited God's application. Listen to this. This is written large in the PCA's Ad Interim Study Committee on Women in the Church. Okay? The feminism of the church has limited God's application of sexuality to the home and to the church. Right? And that has been led by complementarians. Okay? That has been led by them. But what if I said that God's archetypal fatherhood has been imprinted on creation. And that order is good. It's good everywhere, right? It's good. And it has application in the home, for sure. It has application in the church, without a doubt. And yes, in the public square, in society, in culture, it has application. It is this teaching that there is a creational difference That is good, but there's a creational difference between men and women that is motivating us to put in place our statement on selective service. Right? If we limited the differences in the sexes to the home and the church, such a statement would make no sense, right? I mean, we're saying to our culture, you misunderstand male and female. We know what God's word says, and so we're going to make a statement about what what you should believe and what we are going to hold you to, right? So we're we're in our church, perhaps. You could vote it down. (laughs) Go for it. Um, You could vote it down. Um, but, But we're considering making that statement that men are to defend women, and that's based on the fact that Adam was made to protect Eve. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a God-honoring thing. But, but if, we think, if we think that sexuality only applies to the home and the church, then why are we making any stinking statements about what society does? We wouldn't. God teaches us that it is important that Adam was created first and then Eve was created as a what? Helpmate to the man. And that woman was created for man and not man for woman. All of which is pre-fall, structural, paradigmatic, archetypal. Okay? All those words mean the same thing. They just mean foundational. Right? Um, Significance. Well, since God has taught this, we must believe it, live it, and confess it before a dead and dying world hell-bent on hating what God has called good. Hell-bent... On, on saying, no, God, you are wrong. And hell-bent in very specific ways, like, God, I don't care you made me male. I'm female. Right? And then protecting that right. So our society 
is putting forth their decrees, and the church just says, eh, we'll just limit sexuality's application to the home and to the church. You've got to be kidding me. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But this passage, this passage, I think if you went to to um, uh, 90 of 100 Presbyterian churches, the first statement when you come to this passage would be, this passage is limited to the public corporate worship of God. Carl Truman taught me that when I listened to his sermon this week. Right? And I think it's just an absolute, absolute disregard of the context of the passage, the immediate context of the passage, what's stated in the passage, the theology of what's stated in the passage, and all it's done is to create a safe space where you can talk about sexuality, but not the hard stuff like, would it honor God to have a woman president? Um. The immediate context of the passage is a culture that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. Evangelism, God desires all men to be saved. I was appointed a preacher and apostle to Gentiles. And the way that God made the world work. Adam was created first and then Eve. How in the world would we derive from that that this passage is limited to corporate worship? I don't know. I don't get it. I understand what motivates that view. But you cannot get it from this passage. Okay? Again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Our focus this morning is on verses 9 and 10. Paul says, likewise, and the likewise is there because he's just commanded the men. He said, I want men to hold, to lift holy hands without wrath and dissension in prayer, right? And then he says, likewise, and he's just saying, okay, moving on to the next point, likewise, I want the women to do this. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing Modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearl or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. All right, so like I said before, men are, were commanded to do one thing, and, and perhaps we could see that, that praying without wrath is men, are, men tend toward anger. And so Paul's like, don't be angry men, be prayerful men who, who are unified. Well, likewise, um, he goes to where women are tempted now. Right? He goes and exhorts the women where they are tempted. And of course, modesty in clothing only, only applies to corporate public worship. I mean, come on. Again, you see the absurdity of of making that claim of this passage. Um, Part of godliness, yes, both for men and for women, but particularly for women, is modesty in clothing. That's part of godliness. Um, This is Scripture's uniform testimony. 1 Peter 3 makes the point that women should not think about external things. Right? They they shouldn't be focused on external things, but but internal. Um, Peter puts it this way. The Apostle Peter, your adornment must not be merely external. And merely is not there. Okay, it merely was added by the editors of the NASB. 
So it says your adornment must not be external. Braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, I mean, you you read that again, you read a passage like that. Gentleness and quiet of spirit for women is precious in the sight of God. But if you talk, I mean, go into any public context and talk about how women are to be gentle and quiet. And see the reaction. But it's precious in the sight of God. It's precious in the sight of God. It's hated. It's militated against by our culture. Brash and loud women rule the day. And the brasher and louder, the better. Right? And men cower before a brash and wicked woman. Okay? And, and, and yet, we know what is precious in the sight of God is a gentle and quiet spirit. And that spirit... Part of that gentle and quiet spirit is in the way that that woman clothes herself. A temptation faces women particularly. I'm not a woman. I'm not speaking from experience. I'm just deriving what I see in Scripture. There's a temptation that faces women, and that is to dress in such a way that seduces men. Um, like a harlot dresses in a certain way to seduce um, men who lack sense. Proverbs 7 says, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. Dressed to deceive, right? Cunning of heart. You know, but, and so, Peter, Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, many other places, Scripture, where where clothing Um, is mentioned, but here in our passage, women are commanded to adorn themselves with proper or respectable clothing, modestly and discreetly. The temptation is to dress in such a way that attention is brought to your body and, and your openness with that body. That's the temptation. One woman attracts attention to herself by what she wears. Another woman seeks to adorn herself in a, in a completely different manner. Um, Calvin's, Calvin's sermon on this um, passage is rather scathing. You know, I, I'm a softy compared to Calvin. I mean, I just, I have no courage like Calvin had. And here's, here's a portion of what he says. So there comes out a woman like a painted idol. Today it's some rouge. Tomorrow it will be gold jewels, wigs, and false hair, and such the like. Later, we see such ostentation that when such a Diana comes forth thus adorned, 
it seems that she wishes to shame all humility, all modesty, all honesty, as a harlot, as if to say, I will show myself here as a dog in heat. I will be impudent and shameless and show my filthiness to the whole world. We should, I say, see no more of these things. If women observed this rule of modesty, they would not be so spangled with gold as they are. They would not have their heads uncovered as now they have. To be short, they would not show such excess of magnificence that fight the modesty and honesty which St. Paul speaks of in this place if all this, as I said, were taken away. But what? We see that women have not yet learned this lesson no matter how much they profess Christianity. Neither may we say, these things are indifferent, as many use the the subtlety as an excuse. Has God left these things in man's choice, whether he will adorn himself or not? And must we examine matters so closely and be so scrupulous on this point that one must consider sleeves and collars to know which piece is the most licentious? And what for all this? Are they not deckings and settings forth of the body? Yes. What then? As though all liberty were taken from us if we should use modesty. Right? As if, as if we can't have some variation but still be focused on modesty. Now, in another passage, he addresses those who accuse him of legislating certain kind of clothing. He says, no, we're not doing that. No, we're not doing anything of the kind. We're not going to put in law like how, you know, how much you can show and, and, and length of skirt and all those things. And um, he, he says he will not go about making rules for clothing. But then he says, but I am not going to get rid of the command of God. It says modestly and discreetly. Right? And generally, a woman knows when she's dressing modestly and discreetly, when she looks in the mirror and she sees what she's dressed for. Right? Whether that's to attract the eyes of other men, whether it's to attract no other eyes, whether it's to attract the eyes of other women, whether it's to attract the attention from anybody, or whether she's adorned her such a way herself in a discreet and proper manner, and she's concerned more about the inward and how her character will come forth out of her mouth and by her good works. He will not. And so, no, we don't go out making rules for clothing, but we don't jettison the command of God. It is the same today. When a woman has gotten used to power, the, the power and attention she receives from dressing immodest, immodestly, she does not like Scripture's command to dress modestly and discreetly. And so when the topic of modesty comes up, she accuses those who use their discernment in such areas of legalism. But it is not legalism to keep the commands of God. It's not legalism to keep the commands of God. It is love toward God to keep his commands and his standards. Legalism would teach us that we can't be saved unless we dress like an 18th century American homesteader. And that's not true. Obedience teaches us that God delights in chaste and reverent behavior. 
And it is still faith that saves us. We're still saved by faith. But God desires you to, to live modestly. Now, you will often hear it said of this passage that it's opposing a particular, a, a particular new style that was appearing in the first century in Ephesus and other cities. Carl Truman explains in his sermon on this passage, he says, In ancient Rome, as I think in modern society, alongside this independence politically and socially and financially, there was also a moral independence that grew up that exhibited itself in promiscuity. And we know that the new woman, and that was that's a category that, that he defined, the new woman of the first century, dressed in a certain style to indicate her availability, her promiscuity. Um, and then he says, we live in strangely similar times. In other words, the passage is explained to, uh, um, as, as don't wear the uniform of the new woman who is using that to broadcast her promiscuity. I think there's truth to that statement, but we should not let that interpretation take all the teeth out of the passage, right? If you somehow avoid that one uniform, you're, you're living discreetly and modestly, or you're, you're clothing yourself discreetly and modestly. It is not merely the avoidance of that uniform that is commanded here, but rather there is an excess to be avoided when women approach their appearance. A woman may wear jewelry and remain modest and discreet. A woman may also wear jewelry in such a way where the opposite becomes the message. A bull's ring in her nose. Right? Gauges in the ears. Tongue piercings. They're all meant to convey immodesty and indiscretion. Right? So those things, you know, it, it can... Um, our, our society has its methods of broadcasting messages through what we wear and what we, how we use our bodies. Um, but femininity, the female, femininity is to be marked by its proper adornment. And then there is this final point. Rather than be fixated on outward appearance via clothing, apparel, jewelry, hairstyles, a woman should be adorned with good works. An adornment clothed with good works. Now, what kind of good works? What in the world are we talking about here? What kind of good works? Well, the kind of good works, think of this. Later in the book of Timothy, chapter 5, if you flip over there, there's a passage about honoring older women. And what it does is it says, look, if they've lived a life like this, then that woman qualifies for the widow's list. She's a godly woman and the church is going to take care of her. And so we find out in that passage what godly femininity is in 1 Timothy 5. So we find out there the good works that, that femininity has been made by God to, to do. The kind of good works that a woman would do that would allow her in her old age to qualify. A widow, this is 1 Timothy 5, 9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, a reputation for good works, 
if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. So, the, I mean, what, what, what you notice about all those things is it's the opposite of the harlot who's trying to attract attention to herself. It's the opposite of, of attracting to yourself. It's all outward. It's all like focused on everybody else. The glory of femininity is just like the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave up his glory so that he could point to the Father's glory, and so is the woman's glory. She lives for others. That's why mothering is glorious. That's why, but femininity is, is, was made by God to be a helpmate to others right from the beginning. Glory of femininity, like the glory of Christ, is to live for the glory and comfort of others. Look at the list. It's outward. Wife. Bringing up children. Hospitality to strangers. Washing the saints' feet, so being of use in the ministry of the church in feet washing. It's like working in the nursery, right? It's not feet, though. If she has assisted those in distress, those who are hurting, those who are in hospitals, right? And if she has devoted herself to every good work, so every, every good thing that God has listed for him. So all of those works are outwardly focused. Immodest and indiscreet clothing and jewelry has the opposite effect. It says, look at me, serve me. Bow down to me, serve me. But the woman who is clothed with good works says, let me look at you and find out what it is that you need. How can I make you more beautiful? How can I make you stronger? How can I build you up? So just as it may be the particular temptation of men to be angry in prayer or to be angry in general, and then it carries over into prayer, it is the particular temptation of women to be more concerned about their outward appearance than their God-glorifying works. So dear um, ladies, dear women, you have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ You don't need to cast a longing eye to the fashions of the world, to the beautiful, the beauties of the world, right? You have been set free from vanity to serve God, to produce fruit in him that is lasting. Your beauty is to be shown by a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Your beauty is to be expressed by good works, those washing the feet of the saints sort of works. And so which is your greater concern? Your weight or your works? Your jewelry or your love, right? Your pearls or your kindness? Your wardrobe or the church of God? And then, and then this, Brothers, fathers, husbands, if you intentionally or unintentionally have made it clear to everybody, particularly to your wife and your daughters, that their worth is only attached to their hotness, then you need to repent. You are thinking as a worldling and not as God would have you think. Your wife, your daughters, your sisters, 
beauty is to be found in good works, not in the standards of Playboy or Cosmo. So you men should delight and rejoice when you witness the faithfulness and good works of your wife and your daughters. And if you have made it clear to them that you expect them to spend more time in front of the mirror than you do caring for other people, then you have not yet understood this passage as you ought. Now, Lord willing, we'll return to this passage next Sunday, focusing on verses 11 through 14. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it exposes our sins, the way that it uh, points us toward the cross and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. We are thankful that you have set us free from our bondage to sin and we can now live in newness of life to you. We can now leave behind immodesty and indiscretion and anger. And we can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, may it be our delight to honor you rather than to honor ourselves at every point during every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.